Gracious and holy God, the prophet tells us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word endures forever. May it endure in our hearts this day and be made manifest in our lives. Amen. Our scripture lesson today comes to us from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 16 through 21. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you remember the software company Lotus? Back in the 1980s, Lotus was as ubiquitous as Google and Apple are now. If you were talking about software and technology, you were talking about Lotus, which created the app that made personal computers run. Then an upstart company called Microsoft came along and started developing a product they named Windows. At this point, the leaders of Lotus had a choice, see the value in what Microsoft was developing and adapt their own software to work with Windows, or ignore this innovation and hope that everyone else would ignore it too. You can probably see where this is going. Lotus initially ignored Windows, but when they started losing big customers to Microsoft, they rushed an adaptable product to market. But it was a product compatible only with the products they had already made. Microsoft just kept innovating without worrying about backward compatibility, and ultimately Lotus folded. It was acquired by IBM in 1995, and the Lotus brand was discontinued. The year after Lotus was acquired, in 1996, another company was at the top of its industry, Kodak, maker of cameras and film. Now, I might just have to remind you, in this era of digital pictures, remember when you used to have to get a roll of film in those little black canisters, load it into a camera, take 24 or 36 exposures, and then send off the film to be developed and just hope that a few pictures would turn out okay? In the mid-90s, Kodak was at the top of the photography game. Everyone wanted to make Kodak moments. Believe it or not, Kodak had actually developed the first digital camera 20 years earlier, in the mid-1970s. They could have owned the digital photography market. But their senior leadership had convinced themselves that digital cameras weren't going to take hold for the average user, 
And in the words of one of them, we are a paper and chemicals company, meaning they were in the business of developing film rather than of making memories through photography. In 2012, Kodak went bankrupt, forced out of business by the very technology their own researchers had developed. Especially when an organization is steeped in tradition and uncertain about its mission and identity, the disruption of change can be fatal. Change is inevitable. It is built into the nature of creation itself. Just look around us as spring comes to Richmond. Avoiding it or fearing it doesn't keep change from happening. And a refusal to accept the inevitability of it or a lack of clarity about our identity, which in an organization is articulated through our mission, our vision, our values, will mean we're not able to recognize and embrace new opportunities when they are presented to us. The prophet Isaiah seems to intuitively understand this. Much of this long book is written during the season of the exile, that time of extraordinary change and disruption for God's people. They were a community divided, the wealthy, powerful, and elite, along with the religious leaders, had been forcibly removed from Jerusalem and taken to live in Babylon, the land of their worst enemy. While the poor peasants living off the land in and around Jerusalem were left behind in a country now occupied by that enemy. For all of these people, the future was nearly impossible to imagine because the hardships of the present were so all-consuming. In times of such disruption, trusting in the promises of God is exceptionally challenging. This might be why Isaiah invites the people to recall God's works in the past in order to prepare for God to do something new and unexpected in the future. Isaiah draws on vivid images from another disruptive event in Israel's history, the Exodus, when God sent Moses to rescue the people from slavery and take them out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. Isaiah's language here of making a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters of extinguishing army and warrior These are references to God parting the waters of the Red Sea so the Israelites could walk through on dry land and then bringing those waters down on the warriors and horses and chariots of the Egyptian army as they sought to overtake the Hebrews. Isaiah is reminding the people, this is who God is. God is and always has been motivated by love to bring justice for the oppressed to enact liberation and freedom, salvation, for all God's people. But then the prophet adds an important caveat. Even as you remember who God is, you need to forget everything else you think you know, because God is doing a new thing. Now let's acknowledge just for a minute the oxymoron Isaiah has offered us here. Comfort 
in the steadfastness of God's character, God's mission, vision, and values, if you will. But then in the very next breath, Isaiah offers the reminder that this identity means that change is inevitable. For if God is relentless in love and mercy and the pursuit of justice and liberation, then as long as there is injustice and suffering in the world, change is inevitable because God is going to do a new thing. And while it will be true to God's enduring character, it won't look the same as what God has done before. In the Middle Ages, a young woman named Julian of Norwich became what was called then an anchoress, someone who withdraws from society to lead a life of prayer and contemplation. Julian and other anchoresses lived in cells attached to churches, and from her cell she produced the earliest surviving writings in English by a woman. Perhaps the best-known saying which she received from God in prayer is the promise that all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. It's comforting. But it can also sound trivial or even insensitive to someone in the midst of suffering. Julian herself admitted this. She lived through the bubonic plague, also known as the Black Death, which killed over 50% of the population in just two years. After witnessing so much pain, suffering, and death, she confessed, it seemed impossible that every kind of thing should be well. We can imagine Isaiah's original audience saying the same thing. For that matter, we probably share this sense of doubt and uncertainty. How does it help to know what God did in the past or what God might do in the future when the present is so filled with suffering? What are we to make of the promises of a loving God when life is hard and painful in this very moment. Dr. Dixon Chabanda is a psychiatrist in Zimbabwe, a country of around 16 million people. He is one of 12 trained psychiatrists in the entire country. That means there is one psychiatrist for every 1.3 million people. After one of his patients, a 26-year-old woman named Erica, died by suicide because her family could not afford the $15 to take a bus 200 kilometers from their town to Dr. Chabanda's office in Harare, Dr. Chabanda began to do some serious soul-searching. Was expecting people from far away to come to him when they needed care really the best way to help the many people struggling with their mental health? During this time, he attended a religious ceremony, and he took note of the significant role played by elderly women. These women, Chabanda realized, had a profound way of conveying empathy and connection with people. In the midst of his disruption and soul-searching, an answer came to him. In a country that didn't have an excess of mental health resources or professionals, even though the population suffers from anxiety and depression at the same high rate as other countries, he realized his country had an untapped resource. 
a group of people deeply rooted in the past whose experience offered them wisdom and skills of empathy and connection, as well as the firsthand knowledge that hardship can be overcome, that even in the worst times there is hope for the future. This untapped resource was grandmothers. So Chibanda went to work figuring out how to enlist grandmothers in the work of treating the many people in Zimbabwe struggling with what there is called kufungisisa, which literally means thinking too much. That is the word they use to describe depression and anxiety. Chibanda's idea was to train grandmothers in evidence-based talk therapy, which they would deliver on a park bench, a neutral, safe, and public setting. This training empowered them with the skills to listen and show empathy and to provide behavior activation to help people make changes. The training itself was critical, but Chibanda recognized that the grandmothers already possessed invaluable tools for this work, the firsthand knowledge that no matter how bad things get, they can get better. We can have hope. This is what Isaiah does for the people in exile. He acts as a wise elder who has a lived experience of God's steadfast character, who knows firsthand that things can and will get better, that change, whether it's welcome or not, is inevitable. And when things are particularly difficult, that's actually good news because it means that while the best seasons of our lives won't last forever, forever, neither will the worst. Chibanda trained his first group of grandmothers in 2006, and now there are over 600 grandmothers working in more than 70 communities in Zimbabwe through an organization Chibanda named Friendship Bench. They meet with their clients on benches, outdoors, in comfortable and discreet settings, Ten years after Chibanda started the program, results of a peer-reviewed study were published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, showing a statistically significant improvement in symptoms for clients of Friendship Bench who had worked with a grandmother for over six months. Friendship Bench has now expanded to other countries and other communities, including New York City. Through this approach, tens of thousands of people have been lifted out of disorientation and helplessness, anxiety and despair because they have received loving, empathetic attention and care from people whose lived experience gives them the capacity to be rooted in the past while trusting that the difficulties of the present can be overcome and transformed into a hopeful future. Julian of Norwich served as a kind of grandmother for her community, even though she was young. People would visit her in her cell to ask for wisdom, speaking through a little hole in the stone. When she wasn't offering hope and counsel to others, she spent her time in prayer and study trying to understand that message God had given her, that all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Finally, 15 years after she received that message, she discerned this. 
Love has meaning. Who reveals it to you? Love. What did he reveal to you? Love. Why did he reveal it to you? For love. So, she writes, I was taught that love is our Lord's meaning. Love is our Lord's meaning. Lotus and Kodak ultimately failed because they lacked clarity about their mission and identity. Lotus saw itself as a software company wedded to a particular kind of computing instead of a company that helped harness the technology of personal computing to help people succeed. Kodak thought it was a paper and chemical company rather than a company that helped people use photography to capture memories. The people in exile were stuck in the idea that God rescued people from slavery rather than remembering that God is love and that God's love is expressed through the liberation and salvation of God's people from any kind of oppression and suffering. Isaiah reminds us God's mission and identity boil down to one thing, love. It was for love that God brought the Hebrews out of the misery of slavery in Egypt and parted the waters of the Red Sea so they could escape on dry land. It was for love that God brought water to the dry places of the exile, that God tames the wilderness and the wild beasts, literal and metaphorical, in our lives. It was for love that God became human, to dwell among us and reveal the depth and breadth of God's love for all people. It is for love that God dwells among us still through the power of the Holy Spirit, our comforter, healer, counselor, and friend, our wise grandmother. Love is our Lord's meaning. The future God prepares for us will include change because the nature of life is change. But love, God, evolves to meet us wherever life takes us. We can meet change with confidence and hope because we are God's people. We belong to God, a God of justice and mercy a God who cares for the people God created, a God whose name and being and meaning is love. Amen.